When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ken Epsock, and this is Daily Thrones. We're on the air here for Wednesday, December 13th. We're racing towards the end of this year. Can't believe it as I see that day. We are talking some of our favorite scenes and moments, and I'm still looking at season four. And in episode six, The Laws of Gods and Men, one of my favorite little moments takes place. That's what we're talking about, of course, these little, little moments that make the show, make the characters, and it is when... The nobleman Hisdarzo Lorak addresses Daenerys for the first time. Daenerys has decided to stay in Marine and uh, learn to be a ruler and rule a city. And I actually think that was one of her smarter decisions. Uh, she does a lot of things out of fire and blood and passion, but she does a lot of things uh, with some self-reflection. And this is one of them. She can't control Marine because she's lost Astapor and Yunkai after freeing everyone in there uh the the cities fall back to slavery fall back to a little chaos she understands how can i sit on the iron throne if i can't rule out here it would have been interesting to see if danny had kept on marching what would have happened over in westeros if she'd got there well before the imminent threat of the white walkers what would have been but she decides to stay i think that's a great decision again like i said self-reflection good move by danny but she's still got lessons to learn. I still think there's a part of her that is the, um, it is, is the uh, high and mighty queen a little bit. She, she's got a lot of self-righteousness. This is part of her growth. And one of those moments is when she's faced with Hisdarzo Lorak. Because to her, she's, he's the enemy. And there's a lot of things that would uh, back that up just a, around the slavery issue in Marine. But... It's when she's trying to be nice, trying to be polite, and his star says, you know, hey, you killed my father. Which is not a problem to Danny because he was a slaver. Except that his star says he spoke out against what uh, the crimes that uh, Danny uh, nailed him to uh, a cross for. Saying uh, it was cruel to nail those slaves to the cross as a taunt to Danny. Uh, that he spoke out against it. That what would make one think that Hisdar's father might have actually been a good man, just in the wrong place, wrong time. Now, you could say Hisdar is uh, lying, Hisdar is changing the story, we don't know, but you trust him. You trust his faith, and, you, and he asks her to respect the customs. Now, that will eventually lead to the fighting pits being reopened, which is a different conversation, and maybe, I wouldn't call it a mistake Danny made, but it, was, uh, it, it did not turn out to be that great. But it is uh, an important moment for Danny to stop and listen to his dar, to see his side, his point of view, and to respect the customs of people that she doesn't know, that she is not one of, and that some of those customs might be bad, and that Danny does believe those customs should and will be changed. But overall, there's some things you have to slow down and learn about that person across the table from you. I think in the end, if Danny sits on the Iron Throne, or if Danny rules the Seven Kingdoms and beyond, if she's ever in a position of leadership, and she is in one now, but I, I'm talking about an official, that throne is yours, that crown is yours, we all bow to you. I think this moment, one of these, is one of those moments that will make Danny a better ruler. She learned a lot, Marine, and she needed to learn a lot in Marine. And this is one of those moments where Danny paused, took a breath, and learned. What are some of your favorite moments in Game of Thrones? You know what to do. Call in here on Anchor. Find me on Twitter if you want. Use the hashtag Daily Thrones. What are some of your favorite little moments from Season 4 or any season? Let me know. Hey, what's up, Ken? This is Phil over at the Say What You Like Sports Podcast. Just wanted to get in on the favorite moments in Season 4. And my favorite little moment in Season 4 happened in the first episode of the season. It's where Jon Snow is talking to Sam Tarly up at the wall and just reflecting on Rob after hearing about his death. He's remembering Rob for being better than him at just about everything. Fighting, hunting, riding, the popularity with the girls... 
And even mentioning how jealous he was of the way Ned Stark looked at him as opposed to the way he looked at Jon Snow. And that was just another clue about where Jon truly comes from and Jon's parentage there. But I just found it very fascinating that brotherly love shined through because he talked about how much he wanted to hate Rob but just never, never could. Rob just uh, wasn't a hateable guy. And I always wonder, you know, how the story would have uh, went down if Rob would have lived just a little bit longer. Phil checking in and say what you will, Phil. Please say more. Great call. Great moment. There's always some good moments between Sam and John. Uh, from when they first meet to uh, some of the stuff in 6 and 7 when they're on different journeys. I love it. And you bring up a good good idea, good thought starter in this discussion about Jon Snow talking about Rob Stark. It is his memory of his brother, and it paints a great picture of Rob Stark, the popular uh, man of the house. He's the future of Winterfell. Probably a lot of people thought that. But then you got Ned Stark and how Jon kind of could see a difference. He probably misread it. But it makes me wonder, Ned and his thoughts about Jon Snow, what were they? Did he believe he was destined for greatness? He definitely couldn't have predicted what was going to happen. And especially when he goes away to the wall. But was Ned just thinking about John in terms of protecting him, keeping his identity safe? Or did he think at some point this could be the boy who would once, uh, uh, the once and future king is what I'm trying to say. Uh, could that happen? Did Ned have those thoughts in his head or was it all about self-preservation, protection of Jon Snow? I could see Ned going both ways, both directions. But angling a little bit more towards the protection angle of it because that was the whole purpose. When you go back and see uh, how Sean Bean plays some of those scenes with Rob uh, Robert Baratheon in season one, you know, protection of John is on his mind. But it raises those questions. What did Ned really feel about that lineage of Jon Snow? What do you, did he think it would ever factor in? And uh, Jon's view of Rob is very sweet. Um, brotherly it reminds me a little bit of Matt Damon describing his brothers in Saving Private Ryan, just kind of those sweet uh, stories that uh, the last memories of, of someone that is long gone that you did not get a chance to say goodbye to. Uh, sad, beautiful moment. Great call, Phil. Hey, Ken. Just wanted to call in with uh, a bit of a different topic. Um, I, I'm not sure that we've discussed it here as an audience yet. And it's the idea of the fake endings. Uh, there's a lot of talk of fake endings being shot for season eight to throw off the media. And I wanted to know if you think there's any uh, reality to that or if that's just a, a manufactured story to create some buzz. Um, and if there is a reality to it, uh, do you think, what do you think would be something they use as a fake ending? What do you think would be something that they would not use as the real ending for the show? Um, I know we don't like to do this type of discussion too too much but uh this one intrigues me and you know it it's brought to mind a couple of possible scenarios that that would actually really throw me off as far as the ending goes so um i'd love to know your thoughts and everybody else's thoughts and thanks for taking the call ken uh have a great night all right let's talk about those fake endings thomas i think we can talk about it here on daily thrones we've been talking a lot about favorite scenes and other news let's talk about these these fake endings and, and what Thomas is saying, what, what endings do you think they'd use to cover it up? Whether or not they shoot them, write them, uh, let them leak into the press? I don't know. Uh, they, they might already be shooting the, those episodes, you know what I mean? Like, production's been going for a while. They shoot a lot of shows at once, so some of the stuff could already be out there. But what endings would they use to throw us off? I think they have to be relatively realistic, so we're not going to see... Uh, uh, leaks of a uh, hot pie sitting on the Iron Throne. Though, hey, you know what? Hot pie deserves it. He's a survivor. But I think it will be something, uh, something similar. I think it will be uh, a, an ending for every character in power. We're going to see maybe an ending where Cersei wins, uh, Danny wins, Jon Snow wins, Jaime wins, Bran and Tormund win. They get married and conquer the kingdoms, defeat the Night King, and sit on the Iron Throne together. All right, we'll see all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and we could see an ending where it is literally hell freezing over and hell on earth or hell on uh, hell on Westeros, where maybe the Night King destroys everybody. It's a bleak time. We have a sad, sad ending. And then maybe there's a, a white walker on a patrol, maybe a couple of them. And then one lone 
Lone hero with a Valyrian steel sword cuts off his head and sends word to the others. And it's the beginning of the story told all over again. And now the threat is coming down with Jon Snow and the surviving hero. All right, that ending's probably not going to happen. But I could see them letting one uh, leak out or be written or shot where it's just the complete sad, everyone dies, the world is bleak ending. But somewhere buried in that will be the actual ending. I hope it is not leaked. I hope there's no set pictures. I hope there's nothing about this until the episode airs. This is a rare opportunity where we can see how this story ends before the books, before any other major plot points from this final season revealed. We can find it all out on our own as a collective fan group at once, and that is what I'm looking forward to. Let's hope it works out. Some people just like to watch the world burn with spoilers. As we learn every time there's a big event movie, like The Last Jedi, Justice League, Thor, Avengers, anything like that. People love to spoil. Saw it happen so many times with The Force Awakens. Uh, it's, it's a sickness almost. It's almost an absolute sickness. We'll do our best here to keep down any spoiler talk on Daily Thrones as we head into Season 8. If there's a story about it, Something leaks. I just won't talk about it. I won't cover. Hopefully you guys will do the same. But what do you guys think? What are some false endings that you'd like to see that they think they might actually shoot or write or let leak out? Let me know here on Daily Thrones. I'm Ken Abzug, and this is Daily Thrones. A quick look at the world of ice and fire. That's Game of Thrones. But, you know, this is a big day for Star Wars fans everywhere. The Last Jedi in theaters today, tonight. Depending on where you are, some people have already seen it, depending on the country or region you're in. I've had that fortunate opportunity to see it twice already, but I'm seeing it tonight again. So, as we do here from time to time on Daily Thrones, I think it's only, only appropriate that we do talk a little Star Wars. Hey, Ken, since it's basically Star Wars week, I, I'm so pumped to see The Last Jedi on Thursday at 7 o'clock. I just can't wait, but I have kind of a fun question. What Star Wars character do you think would fit in best in the world of Game of Thrones? And I'm going to tell you my choice. My choice is Count Dooku. I love Count Dooku. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of Attack. I'm not the biggest fan of Attack and the Clones at all. But I did love Christopher Lee's wonderful portrayal of, portrayal of Count Dooku. I thought he had this, this commanding presence to him. And even his little short five minutes in Revenge of the Sith. Just that look he gives when Palpatine says, kill him. Kill him now. And I could definitely see Count Dooku being the head of a house. You know, he has like a kind of like a Tywin Lannister type quality to him. So that would be my choice. Count Dooku, what would be yours? So I've done a uh, show over on uh, Force Center that was the characters in Game of Thrones who would work well in Star Wars. And, and the flip side of it, which Star Wars characters would work well in Game of Thrones? Eric's answer of Count Dooku is great. Count Dooku, uh, because of his family line and his history, actually brings a lot from Star Wars to Game of Thrones that would fit in. Um, he is a count. He comes from royalty. He does kind of have that head-of-the-household vibe, so that would be interesting. Uh, you know, with types like Varys and Baelish rolling around Game of Thrones, quite frankly, someone like Emperor Palpatine would be interesting. I'd see Palpatine as kind of... Uh, Almost like uh, he would be uh, an archmaester who works his way up through magic on the side in secret and works his way into some sort of power there. But some choices from Star Wars that would translate well for me would be actually, I got to say, Princess Leia. We're talking about a world in Westeros and Essos that is full of women but still tough for women. And Princess Leia was in the same situation. Uh, government, royalty, a fighter. These are things that would translate well into this world. I, I could see her being like a, a Daenerys type. That's what Daenerys has grown into. She is going to be a ruler. She is going to have some sort of royalty, but she's also going to ride her dragon into battle and kill, kill, kill. That is what Princess Leia turned General Leia uh, has done and continues to do. So I... I think she would translate 
very, very well. I actually think someone like Poe Dameron, a rogue fighter, kind of like a good version of Jamie Lannister, would be interesting to see in uh, uh, Game of Thrones. But also, you know, Captain Phasma, same type of thing, kind of this mysterious knight comes from this land, Parnassos. If you've read the story of Phasma, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's like a Mad Max type of world. So I can see her roaming the land uh, and uh, doing for hers hers and hers alone. And a, 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 an eviler version of Brienne of Tarth. I think the crossover works there. Uh, would Luke Skywalker work in the world of Game of Thrones? Sure. I think he'd have... Uh, He'd be like, uh, at one point, kind of like a Jon Snow. So I guess it would translate. As he gets older, we don't know a lot about Luke as he gets older. So I don't know if he can translate. That's some of my answers. What are yours? What characters from Star Wars would work in Game of Thrones? Where would you see them? How would they work on out uh, in this world of ice and fire? Let us know here on Daily Thrones. And if you're going to see Last Jedi today, enjoy it. Feel free to call in here with your uh, your reactions. I'll probably just listen to them myself and not post them because this is still a Game of Thrones show, but curious to see. Uh, we, A lot of us love both with a hot, hot passion. All right, guys. Enjoy your day. More coming here on Daily Thrones. Hey, Ken. So super excited that it's Star Wars Day here on Daily Thrones with the premiere tonight. I've got my tickets for the 10, 15 p.m. showing. Um, it'll be the sixth one that I've seen with my dad in the theater, so it's, uh, they're big events for us. I actually wanted to call in on the heels of Eric's call and, uh, and follow that up. Dooku is just a great poll to transplant into the world of Game of Thrones. Um, for me, mine would probably be Grand Moff Tarkin. I think Will of Tarkin would be, uh, a great fit in the world of Game of Thrones. You know, much, much like you compared, uh, Dooku to Tywin. Uh, Eric, I, I would do the same with a Grand Moff Tarkin. If anything, he actually might be a little more ruthless which is uh, saying something given what we all know about Tywin. So, um, you know, that's just my thought. I think Tarkin would be a wonderful fit as well as, uh, as your choice, Dooku, Eric. So, uh, great call. Thanks for taking this one, and have a great day. All right, Sir Thomas Sattal with a great call. I think a great answer to this question of which Star Wars character would translate well into the world of Game of Thrones. There's a lot of answers. Keep coming in uh, with those answers if you want to here on Star Wars Day. But Governor Tarkin, Moff Willif Tarkin, I think that is a wonderful answer. If we want to compare Dooku to Tarkin, uh, excuse me, Dooku to Tywin, that's fair. We can also compare Dooku to Tar Tarkin if you want. That's a different podcast. Um, but I think Tarkin versus Tywin is a very interesting matchup. Who would win in a battle of wits? Who would win in a battle of power? Who would win in a military struggle? Between those two guys, they're similar. They're very similar. And that includes uh, Charles Dance's hair, very similar to Peter Cushing's hair. A little bit different as described in the books for Tywin, but on, on the show, it's, it's tremendously similar. Now, Tywin has a lot going in his mind and heart about dynasty and legacy. Tarkin does have family connections. You can read the canon novel Tarkin by James Lucino. He's got a family background. He's got a lot of history. He's got things to uh, standards to hold to in the Tarkin clan. But it's not as uh, at the forefront of his mind as it is for Tywin, who is always worried. Says, Charles Dance perfectly says, I love the way he, way he says, dynasty. Um, that's in Tywin's mindset. And sometimes maybe it proved to be a little bit of his undoing. But they both know how to get their way, exert their will, and gain even more power and gain victories through not just direct actions and direct military actions. But we see Tywin, of course, using the pen or the quill to orchestrate the Red Wedding and uh, kind of also be able to wash his hands of it and let a lot of the anger go towards the phrase and the Boltons. That worked out well for a short time for Tywin. And Tarkin could do that as well. He not just, uh, you know, rose in the ranks of the uh, newly formed empire uh, after transferring over with the, from the old republic, but he, uh, he can play imperial officers against each other. As we saw that uh, with Krennic and how he uh, made Krennic do all the work and take all the blame. And then right when the Death Star started the work, Tarkin swoops in and takes control of it. And it is known as Tarkin's Death Star by a lot of people for a long time. So uh, I love the battle between Krennic and Tarkin as it plays out over several uh, pieces of Star Wars media, not just Rogue One. Uh, they're both uh, 
brutal uh, in terms of uh, sometimes maybe sacrificing their own men or, or understanding that uh, deaths are a part of this. Uh, I think uh, the way Tarkin allowed the Death Star's first test fire to be on Jeddah City, which took out his own Imperial officers, though they had evacuated most of them. The Rogue One novelization teaches us that there were still stormtroopers and Imperial officers on the planet's surface. When that happened, I could, that's something I could see Tywin do. Um, they uh, both will do things that are large-scale, abhorrent actions to others, like, say, orchestrate the Red Wedding uh, and just uh, the, the reigns of Castamere, that whole story. Uh, that's Tywin getting his revenge. And then Tarkin does that as well with the Death Star later on with Alderaan and just has the ability to say, hey, this is war, we got to win. And uh, from a certain point of view, uh, maybe Tarkin was right. I don't think so. He's the bad guy. But you could, uh, a little more shades of gray with Tywin. But I think in the end, you argue, uh, can argue that Tywin is the bad guy. So is it a push? Are they both so equal? I don't know. What do you guys say? Let me know. Tarkin versus Tywin. Who comes out on top? I am heading out to see The Last Jedi for the third time. Very fortunate to have that opportunity. And, uh, well, we've been talking Star Wars and Game of Thrones all day. It's definitely Star Wars Day here on Anchor, just the way it is. Sometimes these fandoms, they just uh, they, they bleed over into each other. You guys had some good talks, uh, good ideas about characters from Star Wars that would work in Game of Thrones. You know, you have to wonder if Han Solo is the best one at all. I mean, I think I think he translates pretty well, but would he fall down on more the side of a Jamie Lannister, or would he be kind of a grown-up version of a younger Jon Snow when he was still all about flying around and saving the world? Han Solo in Westeros could it work? I think it could work. He might be the best choice of all. Guys, if you have a, a Star Wars character that you think would fit in Game of Thrones... Give it a give us a call. Let us know. But we'll be talking about our favorite scenes, wrapping up our look at season four tomorrow. Start looking towards season five, six, and seven. If you got favorite scenes and moments, those quiet moments that build such great characters and storylines in Game of Thrones, let me know. Call in here to Daily Thrones on Anchor. May the force be with you. I'm Ken Abzak, and this is Daily Thrones. A quick look at the world of Ice and Fire. Taking a look at season four's favorite moments and scenes. As we start looking towards other seasons, um, season four for me will overall always be remembered for Oprah Martell. But I think there was a lot going on in King's Landing beyond that that I think brought a lot to the series. And it also, uh, that journey of Arya and the Hound and Brienne and Pod, I loved a lot of the stuff there. And that ties into some of your guys' favorite moments at the end of season four. Here we go. Hey, Ken, so before I move on to Season 5, I have to talk about one more scene from Season 4, and it has to be, in my opinion, Stannis Baratheon's finest hour, and that is when he, in the Season 4 finale, routes the wildlings. It's an awesome scene. Um, a lot of people didn't know who it was, like what army was coming until Stannis was revealed. I knew because I had read the books, of course, but it's a great reveal when him and Ser Davos come rolling up, and then, you know, he has a talk with Mance. He, he, you know, he says to Mance, uh, it is customary to kneel when surrendering to a king, and Mance explains, my people do not kneel. And then um, Davos says to John, you're talking to the one true king boy, you will address him as your grace. And then John says something I believe, of course, I know he's the king, my father died for him. And then Stannis says to John, your father was an honorable man, what do you think he would have done with Mance? And, you know, John explains, I was Mance's prisoner once, he could have tortured me or killed me, but he showed me mercy. I think my father would have taken him prisoner. And that's exactly what Stannis ended up doing. Great moment for my favorite character, Stannis Baratheon. In season four, let me just say that uh, season four, episode 10, Arya Travels to Braavos is probably one of the most powerful uh, scenes in that particular season because when Arya, after seeing the Hound defeated, rides off on her white horse, <clears throat> goes to the harbor, the small port there, and talks to the captain uh, and wanting to go north initially. The captain basically dismisses her uh, and tells her he's going south. She then produces the coin, and the look of awe, respect, and fear immediately come over, comes over the captain. And it says tr a tremendous amount about the House of Black and White before we get to Season 5 as to how much control it has over the free city of Bravos. I think it's a conversation we should all start. Thanks. Great calls from Eric and Kevin about the season four finale. As a Stannis Baratheon fan, this was our finest hour. Stannis the Manus 
heading north with his army and saving the day. I love Watchers on the Wall. Great episode. Uh, that's the battle that precedes this moment. And I like the idea of Jon Snow heading on out to face Mance Ritter. In fact, that conversation between Jon Snow and Mance Ritter is, as I've said before here, uh, even before we were just listing these things, that, that was uh, that's one of my favorite scenes in the show all seasons, hands down. I love Mance and Jon. There's a weird respect there, even at that point in time. There's a sadness in Mance, knowing that he's lost everything. And a sadness, I think, because he, he feels as though he's lost John, And I actually think he did believe in Jon Snow at one point. And the lessons that John will learn from Mance are, of course, revealed later on. We see where it hits with him. But that moment, great. It's tense. Game of Thrones does best. A lot of tension through just the characters and the dialogue. And then, boom. The sounds of horns and an approaching army. Mance thinks John has double-crossed him. John doesn't know what's going on, and it is Stannis to save the day. I uh, I remember that uh, that that next day, that Monday morning. It was like I came in like a conquering hero myself. See, I told you all, Stannis is the one true king. It's a great moment, great moment indeed. But that's the big moment. This little list is about the small moments. The tiny things that build characters and the show and the story. And Eric mentions the conversation with Stannis and Jon Snow and Davos afterwards. And and with Mance. I love that Mance refuses to kneel. Love it. And the conversation, the moment of, oh, I know he's the king. My father, my father uh, you know, lost his life with that claim that you were the actual king. Great moment. Davos uh, shocked and... Um, uh, and I love, I, to me, it's Stannis has shown respect for Ned, extending it immediately to Jon Snow, trusts his opinion on what to do with Mance Raider at the time. Later on, their relationship became complicated. We know that, but I love that moment there. That's the beginning of the episode. Stannis's journey, uh, Stannis's journey would, uh, would change from then on. It'd be tough to defend, but, uh, then uh, this moment of Arya riding off into the sunset, that sunset being Bravos, is great. And Kevin, you're right. There's, there is, uh, there is a a weird, uh, there's this weird thing with the faceless men and the House of Black and White and their hold over Bravos. We'll have that conversation later and send me your ideas because uh, I think there's something to that. But that moment of Arya, this journey. Calling back to the end of season two with Jagan Hagar. I love it when she pulls that coin out. I got so excited. The journey is sometimes better than the destination. And Arya's adventures inside the House of Black and White, not my favorite. Didn't play out the way I wanted to. But that moment where she's sailing off into a new world, literally leaving behind friends and family, leaving behind her past life. It is actually an inspiring moment. It is a cool moment to me to go back and, and relive I was a little disappointed at first, not because of the moment itself, but I remember watching that season four finale and thinking, all right, this might be it. They might cut to Lady Stoneheart. Arya sails off. It goes black. And me and my friend were watching the show, and I looked at her. She looked at me. And we're like, this is it. This is it. It's going to fade up. A phrase going to be running through the forest. We're going to see. No, credits, end season. So I remember that moment a little differently because initially I was depressed. <laughs> for uh, a couple weeks that uh, ah, I didn't get what I wanted. But you know what? Sometimes we don't get what we want with these big franchises and properties that we love. Just go ahead and check some of the reviews for The Last Jedi. I love that movie. But hey, some people didn't because they didn't get what they want. But now I can look back at that Aria moment sailing off to Bravos, and it is everything that I said it was. Inspiring. Uh, an impressive feat that this young girl's fully buying into this journey, leaving this land. She knew she couldn't get home. She was trying to get home so bad prior to the Red Wedding. It was all about getting home. Now it was on to her new life. Great moment indeed. Season four. It's remembered, like I said, for Red Viper, The Mountain, Tywin dying, Joffrey dying. But this wonderful amount of little moments that build the season and the story so well. Move on to season five and others later on here on Daily Thrones. More here now. Hey, Ken, just wanted to call in with my thoughts on the Conquest and Rebellion DVD that came in with season seven, um, or Blu-ray, rather. Uh, it's really enjoyable. You know, I, I hate to say it, but I'm actually almost enjoying watching it more than I'm enjoying rewatching season seven. It's been so much fun to see this uh, same visual aesthetic that was used in the histories and lore uh, bonus sections previously on the other box sets, the other seasons. Um, 
and it's just really been turned up. You know, there's this really beautiful oil painted aesthetic to it now. And, uh, it, it really captured me and I watched the whole thing in one sitting. I was kind of thinking, Oh, you know, I'll spread this out. So it lasts trying to delay the inevitable when I'd have no more new game of Thrones to watch. But, uh, yeah, you know, that's, that's my thoughts. I, I absolutely adored it. I think it's beautiful. Uh, seeing Aegon's conquest was great. We've talked about that here as an audience on game of Thrones lots. And, uh, yeah. So just a couple of thoughts. Thanks for taking the call, Ken. Have a great day. Sir Thomas the Tall has had a chance to take in Conquest and Rebellion, the new bonus material that came with the Season 7 Blu-ray DVD release this week. It's still sitting here on my desk waiting for me to watch. Uh, just a busy week with Star Wars and all. It creates a, a fun but busy week at work. I'm excited for it even more now, if you're excited for it, Sir Thomas at all, because you definitely appreciate the lore like uh, I do and a lot of the callers here on Daily Thrones. We dig into that lore. Game of Thrones does it so well. And yeah, the histories and lore, uh, little uh, featurettes, so to speak, and little tiny history lessons that have been coming out here uh, on the DVDs since season one are are my highlight every year love looking at them i love hearing the voice work by the actors kind of getting in character to kind of uh, tell the history of of things that relate to their characters too that's really cool so i i've enjoyed that a lot and i'm looking forward to see it on this kind of scale and this um all all at once in one sitting 45 minutes to see what it is that i i'm very fascinated by the fact that they decided to do this it, it almost was under the radar and i i'd heard about it coming out but it wasn't like announced it wasn't something big it's just like, hey, 45 minutes on the history of Aegon's Conquest. Uh, that's pretty impressive to me that they just decided, hey, let's do it. Yeah, you know, again, we've talked about maybe that could have been a prequel. Maybe that could have been a, a Game of Thrones movie of some kind. Yeah, I could get behind that idea, but I'm interested to see what they do here. And like you said, Thomas, I love the art of the histories and lores. And I love how it's the, the, those little featurettes have... I've actually gotten better. They look different. They look better now as uh, compared to season one, though I still like them then. So to see it full, kind of a full power mode with Conquest and Rebellion, I'm looking forward to it. If you guys have had a chance to watch Conquest and Rebellion, please check on on here. Check on on here at Daily Thrones. Let us know what you think about it. Let's talk about Aegon's Conquest. Daily Thrones rolls on into the weekend. We'll talk to you soon. I'm Ken Epsock, and this is Daily Thrones, a quick look at the world of ice and fire. It's the weekend here, but we're still talking Game of Thrones. Let's move into Season 5, talking about our greatest moments, greatest scenes, the small moments, the things we really like, the build the characters. You know what? Season 5 starts with this flashback. Maggie the Frog, the uh, Wicked Witch, so to speak, of uh, of uh, Castle Rock, kind of, right? Because this is where Cersei was raised, so it's fun to think. We we, uh, we don't really go to Castle Rock or the, the Lannister homelands until Season 7, but here we are actually for the first time uh, really exploring that. And I love this uh, scene. It is, of course, plays out a little differently in the books. Um, Maggie the Frog is a lot older, maybe a little more uh, ghoulish and witch-like. Here she's played by Jodie May, who is excellent in The Last of the Mohicans, alongside Madeline Stowe and Daniel Day-Lewis, playing uh, the younger Monroe sister. And I, uh, I love the scene. I love the start. It was something different for me, this kind of flashback. I actually liked the, the uh, presentation of, uh, and performance of young Cersei. And even though the Valonqar prophecy doesn't really factor in here, it's not something we see, I really do uh, love this scene. It, it sets, again, a lot of things for Cersei. And this character that you see from early on, she had this privilege and power that allowed her to get away with things. She also had this uh, her father kind of hanging over her, but she... she uh, you know, her friend says that your father will know, and she says, don't worry about it. And Cersei's already rebelling against her father, as any uh, young teen girl would. I guess that makes some sense, but I like seeing it at play there. And then this prophecy. And whereas Cersei and her love for her children is pretty honest and pretty much uh, in her core and drives her and makes you maybe have some empathy and sympathy for her, what I also see in this prophecy moment is this fear, panic, long-term panic is now going to set in because she has every reason to believe that what Maggie the Frog is saying is true. Now, in the books, it plays a little different. There's a prophecy about her friend dying, and that does happen. So imagine that as well. Cersei has this weird prophecy 
given to her, which also foretells her death, saying uh, the Valencard, the little brother, will kill her. And then also, by the way, your friend's going to die. And then when that happens, it, it's got to confirm some things in Cersei's mind. So then Cersei lives the rest of her life, even where we find her now, driven by the love of her kids, but also panicked that they're going to be taken away from her. Her power is going to be taken away from her. She's going to be replaced by a beautiful younger queen. It's a classic kind of fairy tale, wicked witch type of uh, situation. And it really establishes Cersei's character then. We already know Cersei by now. We already know a lot of this. But to have this peek into her past, a peek into how Cersei was formed, I I really love it. It's it's on one level just a fun flashback with a fulfilling some book fan fan service, if you will. But it really be it really focuses in on what drives Cersei on the negative side of things. And I think on the positive, somewhat, go with me there, Cersei is driven by the love of her children. But in the back of her head, she knows they're probably going to be lost. Good moment, powerful moment, and an interesting way to start Season 5. First episode of Season 5, I actually look back now as one of my favorite first episodes. At the time, you know, maybe over underwhelmed. And that's sometimes it's interesting when we, 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 we could probably go look at each first episode of the season and really dig into those, uh, over and over again, because they really, I, I the show's so good that that first episode has so much pressure on it, which it shouldn't, because a lot of times we saw in season seven, it's just a slow burn. It's a slow start. And, uh, that's a different conversation for another day, but I, in looking back, Really enjoyed Season 5's first episode because it had a lot of my favorite moments in it. Hey, Ken, so moving on to Season 5, the moment I want to talk about happens in the Season 5 premiere, which is my favorite season premiere, not counting the pilot. And, you know, I agree with everything you said about, you know, Mance and John in the Season 4 finale and that talk, it's great. And their talk in, in this episode is also great. But the moment I'm talking about is when Jon Snow shoots Mance with the arrow when he's burning, the look that Mance gives him, like he almost says to him in his head, thank you. And the look that John gives back, you could John gives him a look like, I always respected you. And it's that moment that I absolutely love. Of course, you know, things in the book with this scene and moment are, are different, but as far as the show goes, absolutely loved it. Mance Raider is one of my favorite characters in Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire. And it is fair to sh say that the two characters, the two versions of the character, book and show, are, are very different at times. Uh, events and, and details play out uh, a lot more in the books. He's, he's, uh, book fans are really possessive of Mance Raider. They really do like him. And some of the changes of the show can make you uh, question uh, question the, the creators of the show, the producers of the show, and I understand it. But I love the show version of Mance Raider just as much, if not more, than the books because you get to see it play out in front of you excellently through the performance of Karen Hines. But he's not on the show a lot, and we know this. Uh, some great scenes. Um, shows up, disappears, going to come back and light the uh, biggest fire the North has ever seen. Does come back gets captured in one of those great scenes that uh, I talked about earlier this week. That's one of my favorite scenes. Him and John in the tent. White and Stannis shows up. But in the opening episode of season five, this is why when I first watched the episode, I was probably a little disappointed because it is a rapid, uh, not rapid, well, it, rapid, it happens rapidly, but it is a very clear departure from the books. And I had trouble accepting that because I do love Mance so much. And I was like, that's all I get with this guy? But in going back, once the whole story is put out in front of you, you can go back and rediscover things. And and there's there's two moments in season five that are uh, I love about Mance. And Eric called in here talking about uh, his death at the stake and that moment uh, that he dies when John puts the arrow through his heart out of an act of mercy, but a defiant act of mercy. That's a great Jon Snow moment for me. I believe the Jon Snow we know now really started to take form there. There's definitely some things in season four that are about Jon Snow turning on, turning on, uh, on the leadership level and, and turning, that, turning down that path and really making a decision, but, but defying Stannis and doing it with this really big... Um, moment of honor and respect 
earning, I think, in that moment, the Wildings' respect, at least the ones present, and it would help him earn some respect by the other Wildings later, though at a great cost up at Hard Home. Um, I, I think that is a great Jon Snow moment, but I love how they show Mance Rayner, uh almost thankful, like Eric says, almost thankful for Jon for doing that. But Kieran Hines plays the panic and fear. Mance does not go out in a nice way, and he knew he wouldn't. Uh, bad way to go, is what I believe he said. And I love that how they play that. But my other favorite moments are early on. And we see it now, the conversation with Jon Snow and Mance Raider, when Jon is pleading with him, just bend the knee, that's all you need to do, and you will be alive, you will be forgiven, you'll be part of the solution as we move forward. And it makes sense from Jon Snow. Uh, you're with John in that moment. You want Mance. I want a Mance to bend the knee um, just because I want him around. He's a great character, and he would help. Imagine if Mance had stayed. It's fun to play that scenario out. What if Mance had bent the knee and saved his people and things had gotten a little smoother? How would they deal with him now? Uh, would hard home have even happened? Would the hard home have needed to happen? Would have would have happened sooner? Mance shows up, follow me, get in the boats. They're, then they're not even attacked by the Night King's army. Uh, a lot of things could have happened differently. But now, if we look back, especially with season seven, and Jon Snow is faced with almost the, almost the same situation. Danny wants him to bend the knee to save his people, and he won't. It it absolutely is a callback to this first scene in season five, where Mance will not do it. He just wanted the choice. And yeah, he might die for it, but that's all he and his people ever wanted. He wanted to get his people safe, move them south of the wall. That was his number one goal, not to fight. That is clear, but to, it really sinks in to Jon Snow's soul, heart, and brain. And the lesson is learned, and we see it two seasons later. So you go back, and this, this moment, these two moments with Mance Raider in the opening episode of season five are very very important scenes and that's what i love about this show that's what i talk about these favorite moments and scenes aren't just the big flashy big battles and big moments and big beheadings it is the little things that build this show build the characters and they keep uh it's a continual reward system you go back and you learn more you see the effect you see the legacy these scenes have legacy their influence is felt later on throughout the show and the stories and how the characters react and act and i love it season five episode one like eric said i think outside of the pilot it might be my favorite one i'm ken Absock and this is daily thrones a quick look at the world of ice and fire back on the air i've been busy watching the last jedi all weekend long that's right for work and for pleasure Five viewings of The Last Jedi under my belt. And I think uh, if you're a Star Wars fan uh, who has seen that movie, you and you're also a Game of Thrones fan, I, I hope you take a moment to recognize two more Game of Thrones actors appearing in the Star Wars universe. We already know we had uh, the man behind Serial Pharrell. We had Jojen Reed himself was in there. And, of course, Gwendolyn Christie as Captain Phasma. But now we have Mark Lewis Jones as Captain Kennedy, uh, part of the uh, First Order Fleet in control of the big dreadnought ship that appears at the beginning of the movie. And Kate Dickey, Liza Aaron herself, she's on board. She is part of the First Order as well. It is the one delivering the bad news about Supreme Leader Snow contacting General Hux again in the beginning parts of the movie there. No spoilers beyond that there. So I love these crossovers. I love these Game of Thrones crossovers because these actors appear in these small Game of Thrones uh, roles. Mark Lewis Jones as Shaga. Shaga likes axes. Very small scene uh, compared to the rest of the show. Uh, Shaga's there only for a little while, but he's so memorable. He's so good. And Game of Thrones really casts those day players, those bit players, uh, so well. So it works for me that they're in Star Wars and Mark Lewis Jones kills it in his role as Captain Kennedy. Uh, and it's a small role, but I love it. I love what he does there. So, uh, hey, let's keep this Game of Thrones Star Wars connection. Let's keep it going. Now let's keep talking about season five. That's where I'm looking for my favorite scenes and moments. Talked about a few of them there. I want to hear from you guys. Uh, if you have a favorite moment in season five, let's talk about it. Uh, put, a, uh, put a call into the station here, and I'll come up with some of mine as well as we're looking at our favorite moments and scenes of Game of Thrones here on Daily Thrones. Hey, Ken, Kevin Ross. So uh, I guess one of the best quieter moments for me 
uh, is uh, Jorah and Tyrion coming into the water channel into Valeria and talking about the splendor and the glory that is Valeria, even though it's a bombed-out wreck. And you see that around the world. You see it with Rome and um, Egypt, Chime. You see these vast empires um, that, for some reason, no one would ever think they could go away until they did. And it's usually very, very fast. And why they those things don't ever come back. It will also it all will also point later on when we're talking about it in season uh, end of season five season six about the maesters and what I think about them, but it's a beautiful quiet moment of what was in Game of Thrones and pointing back to the deep history that George R. R. Martin created. Thanks. That's a great scene, Kevin. I love what you're talking about there. The scene where Jorah and Tyrion. Forced together now. Well, not forced together. It was more Jorah forcing Tyrion to take the ride. And uh, going through the the ruins of Valyria. Seeing the doom of Valyria up close. It was a, of course, show-only moment. We've yet to see Valyria in the books. We've yet to travel there. Yet to, We've heard them through stories and descriptions, but we've yet to actually be there. So I love that moment just on that alone. And though the sequence ends with... Uh, dramatic uh, attack from the stone men and that's where Jorah gets grayscale and the, and the uh, you know Tyrion going in the water it's a, it's a great action sequence it's a great great sequence indeed but I, I this is exactly again why why I like these little moments of the show that is what's going on there the stories uh, they're both telling the the quoting of uh, of old tales and songs and poems and and then of course Tyrion seeing a dragon for the first time what a powerful moment because we know either you knew or you know now that that's a big moment for Tyrion because dragons were so important to him he was fascinated with them as a child he read about them and though he later on gets to face down a couple of dragons in a very brave if not stupid move that moment where he first sees Drogon flying overhead so well played by Peter Dinklage. That is a little, tiny, quiet, character-building moment on display right there, front center. I loved it. I love a lot of the Jorah and Tyrion stuff in Season 5 on that journey. When Jorah learns of his father's passing from Tyrion accidentally, it's a great moment. And the actual concern, the actual... Uh, uh, empathy and sorrow and, and uh, you know, the, just the feelings of, uh, oh, I'm so sorry for saying that from Tyrion when he realizes he's the one that broke the news to Jorah. Uh, so well played by Ian Glenn uh, as well. Just this stoic kind of pain. It almost like in that moment, Jorah relives everything in his past in one moment. How it ended that way. Maybe if things had gone different, would his father had even gone off to the Night's Watch? Would his father have been attacked by his men? Uh, should Jorah have gone in his place? Should Jorah have just accepted his beheading and been done with it? Instead, uh, it look, uh, he's on this route and it looks like all the pain comes creeping back into Jorah's face. So there's a lot of great moments on that trip. And seeing Valyria itself, like you said, Kevin, does tie to real-world ruins and, and stories and histories of, of people gone past and... and and dynasties gone uh, gone past, and and I I love it. It's a, it's a beautiful moment. Again, show only. So that's why I always hold a, a little special place for some of those decisions that uh, that the showrunners make that might might anger some book readers. But there's some great stuff there. More on your favorite moments in season five and beyond, in all seasons here on Daily Thrones. Hey, Ken, so the next scene I want to talk about from Season 5, and it's from the second episode, and it's when the Sir Barristan, a character I do feel the show kind of did shortchange, uh, at least a little bit, but when he tells Danny the truth about her father, the Mad King, he's like, I want to talk to you, and she's like, about what? He says, about the Mad King, and she says, oh, you want to tell me more lies uh, about my father? And he says, your grace... I was in the Kingsguard. I was with him from the beginning. Your enemies were not lying. Your father was just very, very cruel. He said he had he had sons murdered in front of their fathers. He had people burned alive with wildfire. He he gave people the justice they thought they deserved and was just cruel about it. And I think Danny starts in this scene to really see 
in a different light that her father truly was a cruel person. Yes, Eric, let's talk about Sir Barristan Selmy on the show. It is, uh, at times, I understand what you mean when you say shortchanged. I think there's some great Barristan moments in the show. I like how it played out. Again, with the show, you have to have to approach some things different. And the reveal of Sir Barristan at the beginning of Season 3, like, you couldn't really do it any other way. In the book, of course, it plays out a little bit longer. Uh, as we all know, he's on the ships. Uh, there's confusion of who he is, and it's slowly revealed over time on the show. You have to get there quicker because we're going to see it. We're going to see it right away. That said, uh, his death is one of the more... Uh, I guess sadder deaths on the show. It's one of the ones that left me the most uh, going, no, come on, there's much more to tell with him. But after uh, after further review, as with a lot of uh, decisions the showrunners make versus the books, you kind of look back and think, for the show, it makes some sort of sense. Though I would have loved to have seen Sir Barristan return to Westeros. His exit actually is one of my favorite moments. A hall to die in is one of the great little lines in Game of Thrones. Him getting fired and defiantly walking out and pretty much immediately leaving Joffrey's presence and going to search for the person he believed might be the true queen. Uh, and yes, Eric, you're talking about a great moment uh, where um, I think I knew Barristan was on his way out because he had such a wonderful speech and a wonderful moment with Danny. Danny did need some counseling. Danny goes on a lot of growth in Marine. It's it's a big, big lesson going on there, and I I think that um, this lesson from Barristan is is, un, is an underrated lesson because uh, she was I don't want to say I'm not, I'm convinced I'm not convinced she was heading down a bad path, but suddenly she's going to be the Mad Queen. But there was those questions, those fun theories, and you saw some of the mistakes she was making. Uh, maybe getting a little too stubborn. She definitely has uh, uh, her father's uh, anger and, and penchant for uh, vengeance in her. That's definitely there. So I loved the Barristan moment because this is someone who actually served under the Mad King. And you're so right, that line about your enemies are telling you the truth. They're not making this up. He was as bad as it would seem. And I think that lesson really hit home with Danny. And being able to talk about Rhaegar and how he was and how uh, just uh, loved he was shows that Rhaegar might have been uh, uh, the, the, the true choice. And it also shows that if Jon Snow truly is Rhaegar's son, and, and we all do accept that now, uh, then uh, Jon Snow certainly would be a great leader. But Danny's got that fiery blood. Danny's got that leadership, and she learned her lessons. I think she's a much improved Danny. And I think it was moments like this with Sir Barristan Selmy that built that character, which is why we are talking about these great scenes and moments. What are the quiet, smaller moments on the show that build the story and build the characters? Call on in, call on in with yours, and uh, we'll be continuing this conversation as uh, we roll on here. Season 8, I know it seems so long away, but... Come on, get in my ship, we'll sail to season eight, and we will arrive there and conquer it. That's it for now, here on Daily Thrones.